you found the Digging Oak Island podcast, a podcaster's journey to discover the truth behind the Oak Island mystery. I'm Dave McBride. Thank you so much for downloading and listening. If you have been listening to and enjoying our podcast, please consider helping out the show by becoming a patron. Go to patreon.com slash Island to learn more. Right, it is time to answer your questions and comments from this week, and we only have a couple, so let's get in here. Uh, we'll start off with our friend Peter, who writes, found out more about muon tomography. Suspicion, it's more likely to provide a cliffhanger than solid answers this season. To recap, it's a way of using cosmic ray detectors to take an interior snapshot of things way too large to scan in other ways. Hidden rooms have been found inside Egyptian pyramids and magma chambers have been detected inside active volcanoes, according to Wikipedia. So yes, theoretically, it does have the potential to solve the mystery. As producer John Levy said a couple of minutes into this season's second episode of Drilling Down. Okay, let me just interrupt you here a bit, Peter, and clarify what you're talking about here. Uh, for anybody new to the podcast, in an episode of Drilling Down, those are the Maddie Blake behind the scenes type show. Uh, Maddie um, was listening to the team talking about how they are going to be using this Muon technology this year. In fact, we actually see them behind them, behind the guys be- talking here, setting it up, I think in a truck or something like that in one of the scenes. Now, this technology, as Peter says, use it, uses cosmic rays to scan an area and presumably below ground. And yes, I said cosmic rays. It is a real thing. This isn't an episode of Buck Rogers. Uh, But during the season, when Blake was interviewing showrunner John Levy, a producer, Levy said that the technology that he's pointing at will, quote, solve the mystery. It's quite the claim. Uh, But anyway, Peter continues. In the money pit, we, we want to see shafts, chambers, and treasures, surveyor Steve Guptill explains during a longer discussion on the season's first drilling down, the second the section starts about 32 minutes and 50 seconds in, for those of you who want to see that. Apparently, muons might be able to recognize a stockpile of gold. Muon tomography is apparently excellent at detecting heavy elements, making it potentially useful in assessing nuclear reactors. The Canadian company Ideon, or Ideon has been using muon technology to help locate uranium depo- deposits in Saskatchewan. And Carleton University in Ottawa has also helped improve muon tomography. But let's not get our hopes up just yet. First, the season's winding down, and so far, we're hearing about muskets and masons marks, not muons, which is odd. The drilling down discussion seems to show that drilling devices for the muon, technolo- muon detectors were being prepared before the 10-foot caisson had started chewing up tons of earth. Second, the order of these endeavors seems strange. Wouldn't it be smarter to image as much as possible underground before locating new holes? Maybe there were logistical reasons, but why delay sharing the info for, well, months? Makes, me want, makes one wonder if storytelling reasons are at work. Uh, like setting up a cliffhanger in case everything else fails. So far, the scorecard this season is Akshu's 20, Ingot's 0. <laughs> Finally turns out this tech is no Polaroid. Takes time not just to set up, but to collect enough cosmic rays. Quote, the longer these things are in the ground, the more muons they collect, the clearer the picture will get, said project manager Scott Barlow. Wikipedia mentions months in a discussion of using muon tomography to assess damage at the Fukushima nuclear accident in Japan. Thus, two hunches 
Expect talk about the tech soon, accompanied by lots of hope and hype, but don't expect answers until next season. Peter from South Jersey. Thank you, Peter. Um, always great to hear from you. Uh, always great to hear from a fellow Jersey boy. Uh, I think the real head scratcher is the timing here, right? And you're pointing this out. Um, they showed us this, ne- this new technology being set up. They hyped it more than anything they've ever hyped before as far as bringing technology on here. I mean, they... I mean, they couldn't hype it any more than saying this is going to be the golden ticket here, right? Which is essentially what they did. Um, I mean, you know, they overhype for a lot of stuff for sure, uh, but not to the point where the producers essentially promising that this is the thing that's going to solve the mystery. Again, his words, not mine. And from that scene, we know by the point in the season where we where we're seeing them um, setting this up on the show, you know, that what what we're seeing now is you know, early fall or even mid fall, right? Um, This technology seemingly from what we saw in that drilling down has already been set up yet. We're not getting any discussion about it or any talk about it. Um, Not a word, not a mention of this technology, even coming to the Island, what must've been months before the time period we are seeing now on the show. Now this could mean two things in my mind, as you said, one, the technology either didn't work or showed nothing promising or this is the season-ending cliffhanger they are saving for the end of the season, which makes sense when you consider the time frame of results that you are telling us about here, Peter. Remember a few years ago when they did the seismic scanning at the end of the season, and then we got this extra episode with Maddie Blake and the team getting the results in an office in Traverse City, Michigan. The ship in the swamp, that one that turned out not to be a ship, and, and all these other anomalies in the money pit too that never panned out into anything was all very exciting at the time we saw those results, even if they were literally all duds. Could that be what we get here? The last episode, we see the testing being set up, and then sometime later, they get the results, leaving us all stunned by what these results might mean. This is what they do now, right? They give us the seismic scanning. They give us the gold and silver testing, and we all get it at the end of the season, so we have a reason to be salivating for the beginning of the next season. That's their job as producers is to do that. So it makes all the sense in the world. And it seems very possible that's what we're getting here. But let's see. You know, let's 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 see that as we go. There is no mention in next week's episode description or even in the preview that leads me to believe the Muon stuff is happening next week. So time is really running out here, as you say. So uh, it's, you know, we're just going to have to we just got to sit tight and wait and see. Anyway. Great stuff as always, Peter. Again, always great to hear from a fellow Jersey boy. All right. The only other email we have this week is from Mike, who writes pretty simply here. I have been a show follower since the beginning. I've speculated along with other fans and have enjoyed your podcast. However, I just can't watch any more of this, whatever it has become. If something ever does happen, I'll read about it online and I'll have no regrets not being there watching when it happens. I'm done. Mike. (laughs) Mike, I get it. Um, Like I told you guys many times, my wife was all in on this show for seven full seasons, right there on the couch next to me, watching each and every episode, coming home from work on a Tuesday night, happily exclaiming, it's Oak Island night, you know. Her enthusiasm slowly faded over last season, and now she barely watches even five minutes of an episode. And that is usually only because she just happens to be sitting down for a second. And while she's sitting down, she's probably scrolling on her phone anyway. So she really isn't watching. Every once in a while, she'll come in and and, and make some snarky comment like, oh, did they find it yet? Or any nodding today? Because she always laughed at how much nodding was done by the guys. They always showed, the editors always showed people nodding. So I get it, man. I get it. I just don't agree with either you or my wife. 
Let me say it like this. When the show began nine years ago, I knew this would be a show where they find nothing. And why did I think that? Well, for one, because this is a 225-year search with a history of people, many people, one after another, confidently coming to the island, thinking they were the ones with the technology, they were the ones with the know-how, they would be the ones to crack the mystery, only to see each and every one of them go back home with their tail between their legs. Anybody interested in the history of Oak Island, that is the story this island tells. That is the one real story of this island. As far as I was concerned, this was just going to be another group of treasure hunters who would suffer the same fate. And I was excited to finally be able to see that happen live. But that's what I thought would happen. That's what Oak Island is. I had zero expectations that any group of treasure hunter, these guys, any guys, would be any different than the dozens and dozens of others who came before them. Also, how many of these kinds of shows really exist now? Let's face it. How many people are searching for ghosts on TV or UFOs or Bigfoot and so on and so on? And they never find anything of any consequence. Just some stuff that looks like a little bit of evidence. And if you squint your eye or you listen closely, maybe it's not a coyote. Maybe it's Bigfoot. Maybe that isn't a bug flying by. Maybe it's a ghost, you know, and that same stuff here. Maybe this ox shoe does mean the British military were here hiding treasure. I mean, it's this is what television does now. And that is always what I thought this would be. Now, I'll, I'll admit, they kind of shook my expectations a bit, meaning I was starting to believe a little bit that maybe this group was different once they started bringing in some unbelievably big and expensive gear to do this stuff unlike anything ever done before them. But it was never really enough to convince me that this mystery was going to be solved by these folks. I had more hope, and I still do, that this is the group that can do it because of the unprecedented funding that they have developed, which was not there in the first few years of the show. The only thing that has really changed my mind, though, that I really think now is that the legacy the Laginas are going to have on Oak Island is that they are going to be the last group of treasure hunters for many, many years. And there have been these gaps in the history of treasure hunting on Oak Island. And I think because of the popularity of this and the amount of work that they've done, if they if this show ends without something being found, without a definitive answer, they're going to be the last group to do this for a long time. And as I've also said many times in recent weeks, I think the show, if it is to continue much longer, is going to need to change direction. Perhaps... Fewer episodes per season, perhaps more theoretical research, but the idea of showing an ox shoe and a piece of wood every episode is just not going to do it in my mind. It's driving people away already. I hope the showrunners recognize this, but I don't know that for sure. Anyway, Mike, thank you for listening. I hope you keep listening despite your frustration. A great way to keep up with the uh, search is right here. That's all for the emails this week. If you have any comments or questions for me that you would like discussed on a future podcast, just send them along to diggingoakisland at gmail.com. All right, it's time now to discuss Season 9, Episode 23 of The Curse of Oak Island called Follow the Cobblestone Road. Rough pun, guys. It's a rough one. I wonder if you had to pay, uh, who was it, MGM or who, who, did the, who did the Wizard of Oz? I can't remember. All right. There are only two locations to discuss really tonight, Lot 8 and, Port- and uh, a trip to Portugal. But we did see a few glimpses 
of the Money Pit. Um, as they continue the very beginning of a caisson they started last week, this is the fifth surprise extra caisson. The only thing that really stood out there for me was that in one of the shots, Terry Matheson looked like he was absolutely freezing sitting there. <laughs> so no matter where we are in the timeline and other locations at the Money Pit, we are definitely very late into the season. Uh, anyway, so let's talk about Lot 8. We begin with Marty, Marty Lagina and Gary Drayton metal detecting. Marty is uh, the one left on the island to lead the operations with Rick overseas. So I guess that's why Marty is here doing the digging and sort of taking over, I guess. Um, they find, the two find a large triangular shaped object and... Uh, which is what, uh, and then another one later on, which Gary calls the lock plate of an old musket. It's basically the metal part of an old flintlock musket or a pistol. You know, that that's the hammer where the hammer and the flint meet, you know, that, that little piece that goes on the long, um, you know, whatever, the long wooden barrel and the metal, the metal barrel that's there too, but the long wooden stock. Um, I got to say, this was a pretty cool piece. I have absolutely no idea what this has to do with the treasure in the money pit, but it's still a very cool piece. They bring the lock plate to the archaeology trailer for Laird Niven to put through this CT scanner that they've been putting in there, um, that they've been doing with, with these pieces. Laird says it's probably not British military issued, which I think comes from the amount of screws in it, he says. You get it. I'm sure there's a lot of research being done that we're not seeing here, but that's what we got, meaning that is, this is either, I guess, a civilian gun or from some other military. Now, since the theme of the episode today is Portugal, of course, Marty then asks if it's possibly Portuguese. Laird says it is, because as he already said, it could be possibly anything except British military. Now, this is something I'm going to repeat in just a second, so just hang on for that. This is a theme. Later, we see the familiar, wonderful blue Corvette parked in front of the Oak Island Interpretive Center, which could only mean the presence on the island of one Carmen Leg. The fact that the editors make a point of showing us the blue vet really kind of makes me laugh. Someone in that editing room also finds the fact that Carmen Leg flies around uh, Nova Scotia in this blue 90s Corvette. They also find that somewhat entertaining, I guess. Anyway, weirdly, Carmen is not here to look at this lock plate. Instead, he's only here to see the other piece that they found there today, the triangular piece of iron that Gary and Marty at the time said was some hinge of some kind. And it did look that way. Now, I'm not sure what it means, but I did find it strange that they wouldn't have shown Carmen the lock plate also, or if they did show it to him, why didn't they include that in the scene? Curious, curious omission. Anyway, I digress. Carmen says the triangular piece is something called a spade hinge. It's uh, so that little decorative rounded off tip at the, at the top of the triangle there that makes it the spade part. You see that you see these things a lot. I mean, usually that spade part's a lot bigger. They're incredibly common. You find them on a lot of doors, especially old doors, you know, little wrought iron hinges on old stained wood doors, that kind of thing. I see them a lot on garage doors too, right? Despite that, Carmen is impressed by this find and says that this isn't something that you would often see. And he doesn't explain why, I guess because of the way it looks, but he also says it's very old. And here is where I'm going to really lay into the editing. So if you don't like criticism of the show, I suggest you fast forward about 30 seconds to save yourself some aggravation. Right before this scene is cut and they go to a commercial mid-scene, they make it sound as if Carmen Legg says this piece is from the 1400s. But as soon as they come back to the scene, it's all too clear that what he actually felt 
is that this could come from anywhere between the 1400s all the way up through the late 1600s, middle or late 1600s. I mean, come on. What was the point of that? I don't think I need to tell you that these are two very different eras that mean two very different things to Oak Island and the attempt to deceive us all into thinking that this was from the 1400s and hopefully you didn't come back to watch it later really bothered the heck out of me. Now, maybe I should explain this a bit more. Simply put, the first permanent settlements in Nova Scotia took place in the first decade of the 1600s. So you can see what a huge difference there is between finding a piece that originates from the 15th and the 17th century on Nova Scotia, on Oak Island. When it comes to establishing what this artifact might mean, those are two wildly different things. Finding something like this, finding a piece of any kind that comes from the 15th century on Oak Island is wildly, to use that expression again, out of place. It doesn't belong there. But something that originates from the 17th century is perfectly not out of place. It's exactly what you would expect to find. Absolutely pointless nonsense from the editors of my mind. Really bugged me. Anyway, enough of that. Carmen says this is not British in origin, again, just like the lock plate, and instead opines that it might be Spanish in origin. And predictably, we all could have wrote this ourselves, Marty then tries to suggest that it might be Portuguese instead, because you know, after all, Portugal's right next door there, right? Like I said, Portugal is the theme of the episode, and you will see why right after this little break. Now, as promised uh, in last week's episode, some of the team this week has traveled to Portugal to meet with researcher Corian Mall about a possible connection between Oak Island and the Knights Templar of Portugal, or the Order of Christ, which was the group that took over sort of the mantle of the Knights Templar in Portugal a few years after their, the Templar's downfall. Rick is joined in Portugal by Alex Lagina and Peter Fornetti, his nephews, and Doug Kroll to meet with Corian Mall in the town of Pavona de Lanjoso. Boy, I'm going to really struggle with Portuguese pronunciation. I'm going to make it sound... <laughs> Just a butcher. I'm just going to butcher these things. I apologize now. Anyway, Pavona is in northern Portugal. Uh, he's joined also, Corey Mall is joined all, also by a Templar author and a historian named Zhao Fiendero, who is also a member of something called the Sovereign Military Order of Temple of Jerusalem, which, from what I gather, is like sort of a modern Templar organization. You can look it up if you want to learn more. I'm not sure what it means, just found it fascinating. They meet at a church called Fantarqueda. Again, this is going to really be tough. Now, I have to tell you, I had a really hard time getting much information on this church and an even harder time verifying sort of independently the Templar history of it. So if anyone out there has this information, please send it along. Uh, I certainly don't doubt Corian Mall or Fandero's information here. I just couldn't read any more into it because it was just difficult to find, maybe because most of it's not written in English. Anyway... Fiandero says the property was gifted to the Templars in 1126 and was perhaps the first Templar property in Portugal. The guys go inside and start looking around, especially at the stones along the wall, all of which seem to have some sort of symbol on them, which I found fascinating. These symbols appear to be like a mason's mark, like a maker's mark, right? A brand signifying who either made or placed the stone in this spot. Alex finds on one stone a double cross symbol. Now, this is a common symbol in Christianity. It's something sometimes called the Cross of Lorraine. I think it's referred to more often as the Jerusalem Cross. It has a long history, some of which includes the Crusades and the Templars. 
I was intrigued by the fact that these marks seem to be on every brick, like I said, and you know, in order to build this church. And I was really intrigued by the presence of this symbol, this religious symbol as a maker's mark. So I asked Corey and Maul about these things. And he said symbols were found, quote, not on every stone, but a great many and all over the church, including the high walls and stone ceilings. The symbol you see on the show appeared to be unique. I haven't been able to find another one like it anywhere in the church. So that's kind of an interesting little side note there. Uh, but Alex Lagina is not interested in this Jerusalem cross because of its, you know, what its meaning might be in the history and that kind of stuff. But instead, he's interested in it because he thinks it looks like a symbol that was found on the 90-foot stone. Everyone gets excited and they all agree. And the narration then tries to use this as proof the Templars were involved in Oak Island. And I suppose that the Templars were also the ones who, I guess, etched the 90-foot stone. Now, the Patreon discussion at this point got pretty funny here. As uh, Steve wrote, quote, that symbol is definitely on the supposed drawing of the supposed 90-foot stone. (laughs) And then Dan wrote, quote, definitely on the 90-foot stone. I thought there is no actual copy of the stone's writing, that the one shown on the show is is one that was recreated, end quote. Um, You're absolutely correct, Dan. Folks, if you didn't know this already, and we've talked about this a lot on the show, but it's worth mentioning here again, um, no one actually knows what the 90-foot stone looked like. No one copied it. No one took an etching or anything like that. Why no one ever did that, no one can really give me a good answer for that, but no one ever did. Your guess is as good as mine as to why they wouldn't do that, (laughs) but the fact remains There is not an actual copy of the 90-foot stone. No one can tell you with any certainty what it looks like. What we see on the show, the 90-foot stone image, the the things that were supposedly written on there, is just something created years and years later by someone who was basically working off memory. The accuracy of that image is certainly in dispute, is by no means exact, and um, can't really rely on it, honestly. Now, again... Like I said, this Jerusalem cross was and still is a very popular symbol. So if somebody wanted to fake a secret code, it certainly is well within the realm of possibility that such a person would use this cross as one of their symbols because it is a very popular sort of secret symbol of a lot of different things. But I'm just speculating there. I don't want to get too far out over my skis on that one. So next, Corian takes them out to see a Templar cross on the exterior of the building. This is a really fascinating piece. Within that cross, we find a few other symbols, including a circle with a dot in it. Now, the historians mention that this was a symbol used to represent gold. I know nothing about that. So again, I turn to the expert, Corian Mall, who explained a little bit more about this symbol. He wrote to me, quote, The circle with the dot was already in use by the Egyptians, who used it as their main ideogram for the sun which in turn was associated with gold. As such, it became part of the symbols used for the seven planetary metals, lead, tin, iron, gold, copper, mercury, silver, used by alchemists from the Middle Ages onward. What is remarkable about the panel on the east portal of Fontarcada is that you see the sun sculpted on the left, the crescent moon on the right, and the circle with the dot is in the middle. Since the sun is already visible clearly on the left, one would assume that the symbol at the heart doesn't mean a second mentioning of the sun. In my opinion, it's more likely it is intended to represent gold. Templar crosses of the size on the portal in Fontarcada were used to mark Templar commanderies. You will find this identical round Templar cross of about the same size over the original gate of the castle of Tumar. However, there it doesn't have the dot at the heart. 
But the guys are, again, and we're going to get to tomorrow in a minute, but once again here, the guys are less interested in what the symbol could mean and way more concerned about how much this symbol, this circle with a dot, looks like something found on something called the H.O. stone. So I guess we need to talk about that stone for a second. Now, I got to admit to you, uh, my memory is a little sketchy on this one, so I don't have the exacts on the findings and the times and all that. Um, and that's because I've looked into this years ago. I do not find it very compelling, the H.O. Stone, and you're going to see why in just a second. In the 1920s, during a time of a treasure hunter named Edward Brown, he's a very short time on the island, I think only a matter of months, but in that time, and this is, again, in the early part of the 20th century, his team found a large boulder inscribed on it um, with some with symbols and writing inscribed on it. They found it in something called Jujri's Cove, which is just on the north tip of the swamp, the triangle of the swamp. That's Jujri's Cove. Um, so they found this boulder, and they thought that it might possibly mean that underneath it was where the treasure would be found. So the guys stuck some dynamite in it and blew the thing to pieces only to, to discover that nothing was underneath it. So fast forward a few years later and Gilbert Hedden is on the island and his men discover these fragments. I think I have this right in the timeline here. And not knowing about Brown's little fun dynamite excursion there, he was excited. So he had them looked to had them looked at more and even looked around Juju's Cove more where he found the additional pieces of this blown up stone, including something called the H.O. Stone. The problem is one of these other inscribed pieces of the original boulder had inscribed on it S.S. Ross 1864. So you see now why I don't find the H.O. Stone interesting, right? No matter what these symbols look like or what they might mean, it seems pretty clear to me that they were not Templar in origin, nor were they even pre-1795. This is why the H.O. Stone isn't mentioned alongside things like the parchment or the 90-foot stone as one of the mysterious discoveries in the island. So as cool as it might see, be to find this circle dot symbol used in a Templar you know, church and then also used on Oak Island, it, it's it's used on Oak Island and so, on something that we know is not related to pre-searcher time, the depositor's time. It just doesn't mean anything to me, really. So as cool as it is, it's all it is. It's just cool. So later, uh, Corey and Maul takes the team to Tamar. Now, anyone familiar with the history of the Templars in Portugal will recognize the name of this town. Corian shows them the statue of... I never pronounced this guy's name right. Galdim Paz or Pays... Uh, you see his, you see his name all the time in Templar history. Um, he was, but well, let me play this, explain it like this. Before becoming what was the fourth Grand Master of the Knights Templar, uh, this man was knighted by the first King of Portugal for fighting the Moors in the southern part of the country, and also served for years fighting in the Holy Land during the time between the Crusades. Um, so, for many of the people who. Because of him, many of the people who believe the Templars found and hid secret treasures of Christian relics, things like the Holy Grail or the Ark of the Covenant, it was this Grand Master who they think was perhaps the guy who brought these relics from the Holy Land to Portugal and hid them here in Tumar before later Templars, during their persecution, 
then remove these things from Portugal via Scotland and then to the New World, I suppose, to be buried in Oak Island. While chatting in Tamar, Corian talks about the Order of Christ, the Reformed Templar organization we discussed in last week's podcast. You can go back and listen to that. He shows them the cross that was their symbol, and it's very similar to the Templar cross with a few notable differences, including being a slight bit longer. The original Templar cross kind of makes a square. This one kind of is more rectangular, like a Christian cross we see today. This leads Rick and Doug to try to equate this to Nolan's cross. And I got to tell you, man, that seemed like quite a stretch to me. But I love this stuff, so I'm willing to uh, live with a few of these kind of stretches, you know, to see all this amazing Templar history and all this incredible sights. So next, the team heads to the incredibly impronounceable Alcadao de Serra in the middle of Portugal, north of Lisbon. It's on that western side of the country, but it's not on the coast, but it's kind of north of Lisbon on the, uh, on the west side there. They're here to see a Roman-built stone road. They're joined by archaeologist George, I see it as Jorge, but they say George Facaredo, Facaredo, who is currently working to restore this road. Uh, this archaeologist talks about this road and tells us that, that this Roman idea of building roads this way, the basic technique that they used, was copied for centuries and all over the world. And he seems to think that this could be the, in his words, quote, same technology used to build this path, wharf, road thing that they're finding in the swamp. Now, I have two basic issues with this whole idea of equating the Roman road to the swamp. One, they need to do a little bit better for me than, you know, quote, it looks a little bit like that or, you know, it's possible for me to really be convinced that it's worth kind of looking into. But but another thing that bugs me about it is this is Roman built, right? I mean, am I missing something here? Are we saying the Romans were building roads in the swamp? Sure, it's also found in Portugal, and this is a road found in Portugal, but it wasn't built by the Portuguese, and it wasn't built by the Templars. It was built by the Romans. Now, for many episodes now, we've been trying to say that the feature in the swamp is an indicator of Portuguese presence on Oak Island, or even, I suppose, the presence of Portuguese Templars or members of the Order of Christ. This goes back to the beginning of the season where we had uh, you know, somebody else in the war room showing us these things. But how are we making that connection exactly? Because we happen to find another Roman road in Portugal? There are Roman roads all over Europe. What am I missing here? Am I, am I not? <laughs> and I'm genuinely asking this. I don't understand what, what I'm missing here. Be, you know, <laughs> I just, I, again, I, I just, I, I don't see what, what, what we're, what we're trying, how we're trying to make this essentially Portuguese or Templar. You know, we spent the entire episode talking about the Knights Templar, but this road here has nothing to do with them or the Order of Christ, or anyone else in Portugal. I'm just confused by all of this, and, and I think um, I'm not sure what this is supposed to mean. Now, before we go, after picking apart a lot of this episode, I just want to mention a couple of things, Especially, and we'll start off with a couple of things said on the Patreon about the Templars that I really liked. Dan said, quote, As crazy as it sounds to me, if the story of Oak Island is to be believed, the money pit... The 90-foot stone, flood tunnels, etc. The only thing that makes sense to me of why anyone would go to that much effort would be the Templars. To keep hidden or maybe hundreds of years until an unknown time when it would be appropriate time to, uh, to reveal the priceless treasures such as the Ark of the Covenant. 
And then Claude on the Patreon responded to Dan there and wrote, Dan, I agree, but if they went through all that effort to hide it, I think they meant for it to never be found. What if finding it ushers in the end of the world, the end of days? What if it truly was hidden to never be found? I mean, that's the stuff I love, right? After, so after, let me just mention one more thing. After answering another one of my questions, Corey and Maul then kind of offered up this little nugget, which I mean, hang on. He writes, quote, there is another mystery here. Lands in the Font Arcata were donated to the Knights Templar already in 1126. That is three years before the Council of Troyes in which the Templars were officially established. Let that sink in for a second. It's six years after their foundation, while there's just nine of them living at a site in Solomon's Temple in Jerusalem. It is one year after Hugh of Champagne, one of the wealthiest and most powerful men in Europe, leaves his wife, children, and his possessions to join the Knights Templar in Jerusalem, never to look back over his shoulder. You would think there must have been a pretty compelling reason for him to do so, like perhaps the Templars had found something at the root of his beliefs. Only seven years later, in 1134, by his will, King Alfonso I of Portugal donated a third of his entire kingdom to the Templars. There might be a further clue in a document another five years later in the papal bull, which is like a papal decree called Omne Datum Optimum, issued in 1139. Pope Innocent II stated, we establish that the house or temple in which you have have assembled for the praise and glory of God and the protection of his faithful, as well as the liberation of the church of God with all its possessions and goods, which it is known to hold legitimately at present and which may be obtained in the future, will be under the protection and tutelage of the Holy See for all time to come. In this bowl, the Pope included a sweeping legal statement, claiming everything the Templars would possess or find in the future for the Holy Roman Church. The church was already the wealthiest institution in the world. And Innocent II, who was selected by intervention of St. Bernard of Clairvaux, likely wasn't after more earthly possessions since the Templars already answered to him alone. I think there was something else going on. Food for thought. Corian, uh, <laughs> I mean, folks, this is why when it comes to Oak Island, no matter how many times you hear me poo-poo this stuff, I just can't quit the Templars. So that's going to do it for this episode of the Diggin' Oak Island podcast. Don't forget, I'm on the air as a DJ Wednesdays, 2 to 5 p.m., WDVR-FM. You'll find me hosting a show called The Bourbon Street Bistro from 2 to 4, playing the music in New Orleans. And then from 4 to 5 p.m., hosting a show called Island Vibes, where I play music with sort of a tropical feel. You can listen by uh, going to WDVRFM.org, or you could, uh, if you're in eastern New Jersey, or or, sorry, eastern Pennsylvania or western New Jersey, you can tune to 89.7 FM or 90.5 FM. Also, I produce another podcast called Sit Downs and Sessions. Me and my friend and current radio, fellow radio host, Chris Post, sit down over a drink or two. We talk about pubs, music, politics, paranormal, basically anything two guys can talk about at a bar. Give it a listen. You'll find it at sitdownsandsessions.com, or you can certainly go on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or all the usual places. And don't forget, you can really help out the show by becoming a patron 
If you think the show is worth five bucks a month, then head over to patreon.com slash Oak Island to learn more. Also, if you would like to help out the podcast in another way, then you can do so by giving us a five-star rating on Apple Podcasts or anywhere you get your shows. A big thanks to everyone who has done that already. Really do appreciate it. And don't forget, you can follow us on Facebook and Twitter. Just go to at Diggin' Oak Island on, in, your, in your search bar. And again, if you have any comments or questions that you would like to send directly to me, you can do so via email. That's the best way, Island at gmail.com. But also keep in mind, if you do send me an email or if you send me a direct message on any of those social media platforms, I may just answer it here in the podcast. So if you don't want your message read aloud, just please make a note of that for me. So until we speak again, I'm Dave McBride. Thank you for listening to Digging Oak Island.